I feel a, a little bit like uh, Chris, uh, Meg just offered me the music stand. I have nothing to put on it, but for the sake of comfortability, I kind of want to grab it and stick it here. Um, so I, I have had some people uh, suggest to me since they found out that, hey, I'm going to be speaking with very little notice, like, are we going to do another sermon in the sack kind of day? For those of you who don't know, uh, last month we had been asking our kids to bring items in, um, in a, that I would not know about in a paper bag, and then I had to come up with a sermon off the top of my head uh, about those items. It's based on something my dad used to do and my grandfather used to do before him, and it reminds me a little bit of a game that we used to play in college. Um, I went to Bible college, and so we played nerdy preacher wannabe games. Um, <laughs> Not the same as the games that many other people play at college, I'm sure. Uh, but our, our game was the kingdom of heaven is like. And so on any moment's notice, we could hand a random object to someone else and say the kingdom of heaven is like, and they had to respond with a theologically correct statement of the, the, uh, why the kingdom of heaven is like, whatever. And my favorite one was um, handing somebody a Mountain Dew bottle and saying the kingdom of heaven is like and they pick it up, the kingdom of heaven is like this Mountain Dew, and then they blanked, and they're like, for no reason, because the kingdom of heaven is good for you, and this is not. Um, <laughs> we allowed it. Um, yeah, as Meg said, um, Marty is dealing with some health issues uh, over the last couple of days. He's been to see some doctors. Um, they've given him some medication. On the way walking up here from the parking lot today, he just began to feel um, that his body was not doing what it ought to be doing, and so we're getting him checked out, and uh, they're at the hospital. Please continue to pray uh, for them as they do that. Marty gave me permission to say this this morning. He goes, would you please tell my church family that I am uh, a little scared this morning? Uh, he says, I, I am comfortable with this church knowing that, and I appreciate that we are a place, that you are a place where people can be real about what they're feeling in the moment that they're feeling it, that you will, that you'll accept that, that you'll hold that, and that you'll pray over that. So we're just going to ask you to do that, and we'll do our best to, to keep you updated um, about what's going on, so that you know how to pray, uh, either continuing to pray uh, for answers or rejoicing when answers come, or, or whatever the case may be. Uh, this morning, uh, because we're a teaching team and we work together, I already know where Marty was going to go with his sermon, and so we're going to do a little bit of that uh, today. Marty said that he had about eight sermons to preach this morning, and uh, he was going to try to narrow them down once he got up here. I have no idea how many of those I'm going to hit this morning, all right? He can listen to the recording and tell me. Um, but uh, our, our, our message today is going to begin in the book of Acts. Um, so if you have your Bible with you today, feel free to open up to Acts. We'll put the words up on the screen behind me. Uh, it's in Acts chapter 8. And let me just set the stage for this just for a minute. Uh, in Acts chapter 7, we are introduced to a persecution that is breaking out against the church. Um, a man by the name of Stephen, who's filled with the Holy Spirit, has gone out and he's been doing miraculous and wonderful things in Jerusalem. The, um, some of the religious leaders of, of Jerusalem are not happy with what Stephen has been doing and saying. They end up uh, putting him to death. Uh, and at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, the first verse of Acts chapter 8, um, we're introduced to who, the man who would become the Apostle Paul, 
who is there as Stephen is killed, giving his approval. And it's setting the stage for what will come in a few chapters that, that, that Paul is going to become a persecutor of the church. And then he's going to have an encounter with Jesus and become the champion of the church and the missionary of the church to the Gentiles. And, and what's really happening starting in, in Acts 8 and then moving through the rest of the, the book of Acts is that the message of God and the good news about Jesus is beginning to go out from Jerusalem where it has started. The, the good news about Jesus and Jesus' ministry begin in Israel. They begin mostly in northern Israel and Galilee. Eventually it moves down to Jerusalem in, um, in the southern part of Israel in Judah. Uh, where Jesus is eventually crucified by the powers that be as an insurrectionist, um, is buried, uh, and then, uh, according to our faith, uh, is raised three days later from the dead. He meets with his disciples, he gives them power of the Holy Spirit, he gives them a mission, and then he goes to be with the Father, and the disciples begin to share the message. On the day of Pentecost, they are in Jerusalem, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they begin speaking the good news of Jesus, they begin speaking it in all sorts of different languages, because Jerusalem is filled with all, people from all over the world, all over the known world, uh, for this festival of Pentecost. And, and so the Spirit makes this miraculous display. And we're told that on that first day uh, of the church, that Pentecost day, that about 3,000 people are baptized. That is, 3,000 people decide to identify themselves with Jesus Christ and become His followers. That is, for them as Jewish people, seems like the next logical step in their faith. Uh, that happens in, in Acts chapter 2. And, and so from Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 7, uh, we are in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas as the good news of Christ and the church is growing in that region. But it, up until Acts chapter 8, it is still entirely and completely a very Jewish church. Uh, it is a Jewish movement of faith in and around Jerusalem. And we would do well as Christians to remember that the origin of our faith is in the Jewish people. Um, Christianity has been guilty over the centuries of a lot of anti-Semitism. Even today, um, that can be true. We would do well to remember that that is wholly inappropriate because of where our faith began. Um, into Acts chapter 8, we begin to, to discover that the good news about Jesus is moving out from Jerusalem and from the region of Judah up into the next section of Israel to the north, the land of Samaria. The land of Samaria is populated by people called the Samaritans. You may have heard of the story of the Good Samaritan, and you may be familiar with the Samaritan people. The Samaritan people are uh, a mixture of people uh, who are both Jewish and not Jewish. The Samaritan people think of themselves as Jewish, but most of the Jewish people do not agree. The Samaritan people are holdovers from um, a time in the Old Testament when the northern part of Israel was conquered by a kingdom called the Assyrian Empire. The way that the Assyrian Empire conquered people was to move a large chunk of the native population out of their homeland and spread them across their empire. That made any one people group too weak to fight back. And instead, they would take other people groups from all over their empire and move them into the land that had just been displaced. And so the Samaritans are made up of a ragtag group of people of mixed heritage backgrounds. Some of them are Jewish or part Jewish, and some of them are from who knows where else in the world. But in Acts chapter 8, we discover 
that the good news of Jesus has begun to reach them. And it becomes very evident in the early part of Acts chapter 8 that the Holy Spirit has come even to the Samaritans. And a guy by the name of Philip, who's a friend of Stephen's, who has just been killed in the previous chapter, he goes to Samaria in Acts chapter 8, and he preaches there, and he witnesses there, and he baptizes there, and he brings people to Christ there. And the apostles who are still down in Jerusalem, Peter and John, uh, those, those great apostles of the church, they hear that the gospel has kind of leaked out from them to another land. And so they head up there to see what's going on, uh, what is happening And they get there, they see what is going on and what is happening, that the Holy Spirit is here. And they say, this is great. The good news has come to the Samaritan people too. That's wonderful. They give their blessing upon what has happened. And then they go back to Jerusalem and report uh, to the church. Even the Samaritans are coming to Christ and everybody rejoices. So the, the good news of Jesus is beginning to go out. It starts in Jerusalem. It goes out to the surrounding Jewish land of Judea moves its way north into Samaria. But still largely, this is a Jewish movement. In the next couple of chapters, that will change. By Acts chapter 10, we'll have invited Romans into it, and then after that, Greeks into it as well. But in the end of Acts chapter 8, it's not a group of people that get invited into the church, but one single individual. The end of Acts chapter 8 is very different from almost every other story in the beginning of Acts of people coming to Jesus. Almost every other story in the beginning of Acts, in the first half of Acts, is about a group of people who come to Jesus. The end of Acts chapter 8 is about a single individual, and it's monumentally important. And I want to share with you why. Uh, So Acts chapter 8, we're going to pick up reading at at verse uh, 26, and the screen is too small, so I'm going to read off my phone. Uh, if technology will cooperate. There we go. Uh, Acts chapter 26. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, by the way, the word in Greek for angel is also messenger, so we're not sure if this is a divine word that comes from God or another human being that says this, but either way, a message comes to Philip. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, get up and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the wilderness road. If you like geography and maps, I really wish I had one for you, but last minute, please forgive me. Jerusalem, uh, the reason that the road goes down is because every road from Jerusalem goes down. Jerusalem is at the top of a mountain, so every road is down. Uh, Down for us is often south. That is not the case here. Down from Jerusalem to Gaza is actually to the west, all right? So we're going down from the mountains of Jerusalem toward the plains, uh, toward the Mediterranean Sea, toward a coastal road that runs all the way down to Egypt and farther into Africa. It is one of the major trade routes of that area of the world at this time and before and even after. Get up and go to that road, the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. Verse 27, so he got up and he went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. This is not not a background guy in the government. This is a prominent guy in the government, all right? In charge of her entire treasury, he had come to Jerusalem to worship. 
He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. This guy is already acquainted in some way, shape, or form with the Jewish faith and with what we know as the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew Bible. And then the Spirit said to Philip, go over to the chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. Um, He's apparently reading out loud. I spent a summer living in Kentucky with my grandparents. My grandfather was a preacher, and he had this habit of before his sermons um, during the week, he would read the passage out loud so that, you know, he was familiar with it when Sunday came and he wouldn't trip over the words. And he had this amazing, deep, deep voice. Um, You know how, how Stephen sings with this wonderful, deep voice here. My grandfather speaks with that voice. Like, that's That's his natural speaking voice. And he has this way of like rolling his R's when he speaks. And like, it's just, it's this great speaking voice. And you haven't lived till you've wandered past his office as he's reading the prophet Isaiah out loud in his wonderful deep voice, especially the parts of Isaiah that are a little, God's upset with people. You wander past his door and go, oh, okay, now I understand. He's reading the prophet Isaiah out loud, this Ethiopian eunuch, as Philip's listening, and he asked him, do you understand what you are reading? And he replied, how can I unless someone guides me? Let's pause right here for a second um, because this just popped into my mind. It is very easy for us living in America, living 2,000 years after the New Testament was written, having had this book for so long, to think that we understand what is written in it on our own. There is great wisdom in what the Ethiopian eunuch says. How can we really understand unless we are in a community of people explaining it? Um, There is worth in sitting and reading the Bible on your own, and you can gain insight from that. But there is more insight to be gained, and that's why we gather together. That's why we meet in small groups and over coffee and in church, and we sit down and we talk about the Bible because there is more insight to be gained to be gained when somebody guides us. And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. And now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this, which is, this is part of Isaiah chapter 53. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb, silent before its shear, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. And who can describe his generation, for his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch asked Philip, about whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about somebody else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, And the eunuch said, look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. This is a fantastic story, uh, often referred to as the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. He is the central character of the story. It's his story of coming to faith in Jesus, this 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 person who is the treasurer of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. 
And as I said before, it is the only time in Scripture, in the, I'm sorry, the only time in the first half of the book of Acts where one single individual alone comes to faith and is baptized. Every other time it's a family, a group of people, the thousands of people, a household of people. This time it's one person, one guy. What makes this guy so special? What makes him end up in the story of Acts? What led the Ethiopian eunuch to be someone who is remembered 2,000 years later for his conversion? That question is a vitally important question for us to answer, I think. Because if we're going to understand our own faith, I think it's important to understand it through his eyes. This Ethiopian eunuch is described to us using a word that we don't use very often anymore today. That word is eunuch. Uh, That word is not any kind of title or any kind of position, nor is it part of his name, but it describes something that has been done to his body. Eunuchs uh, in this day and age were uh, men who had at some point in their lives uh, had their, um, their sex organs, their genitals destroyed in some way. Uh, they were no longer capable of um, reproducing. Many of them were not capable of having uh, sex anymore. This was done for a variety of reasons. Sometimes this was done uh, in order to put them in charge of something where they might be tempted uh, uh, to be put in charge of a king's harem, for example. Uh, Sometimes it was done in order to keep uh, people from becoming too aggressive. Invading armies would do it to those that they had conquered so that they would not rise up and fight back. Sometimes this was done because it was believed that if we remove the male drive, we will make people more fit for other roles. And this may be what happens in his particular role. He's been entrusted with a great responsibility. We do not want him to abuse it. We don't want him to be tempted to take what is Candace's. We do not want him to uh, fool around with the money. We want him to be less than what he would naturally be in order to make him better suited somehow for the role that we want him to fill. He has been made a eunuch. And yet, he still goes up to Israel to worship. Somewhere along the line, he has heard about the Jewish faith. Somewhere along the line, he has gotten himself a copy of Isaiah, maybe other parts of the Jewish Bible. And he has begun to read about God, and he has decided that he wants to go that he wants to go to Jerusalem because he also wants to worship this God that he has found in the Jewish scriptures. Here's the problem. Several places in the Jewish Bible tell him that he's not allowed to do that. Deuteronomy, a few other places are very, very pointed that those who are less than, those who have been disfigured, those who are not the way that the rest of us are, those who are not normal, are not good enough to get into the house of the Lord. 
And so by the time of Jesus, by Second Temple Judaism, this is the second time the temple has been built in Jerusalem, by Second Temple Ju- uh, Judaism, there was a very, very strict um, uh, setup for who could come to the temple to worship. The temple is at the highest part of uh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits on top of a hill called Mount Zion. Uh, and on top of that hill, there is a smaller hill called the Temple Mount. The temple sits on top of that. So you had to go all the way up to the temple, enter into the gates of the area surrounding the temple, and there, once you get through the gates, you would find this big, beautiful, um, wonderful, glorious temple dedicated to the Lord. And if you wanted to worship God, you could go up to the temple, and you could do that if. And this is a pretty big if. You could go up to the temple and you could do that if you were Jewish by birth and a male. And there was nothing to disfigure you. Those three stipulations had to be met. You had to be Jewish by birth, you had to be a male, and you had to be what the Jews would call ritually clean. There's nothing imperfect. There's no bodily imperfections about you. There was a court set up outside of the temple for those who were not Jewish male and ritually clean. It's called the court of the Gentiles. And there was a wall that stood about waist height, several yards back from the temple. And if you were not Jewish, not male, or not ritually clean, that's as far as you could go. There was even another court set up for the women that was farther back than that. And, And that's honestly because in this time in human history, just having a female body was considered to be less than male. There was something wrong with you just for having a female body. Your body was less than, not clean in some way, imperfect, just because you were female. And so there were these stations back from the temple. And and so this guy comes from Ethiopia, this this guy who is, I am pretty sure, used to not being denied access to anything. He's the treasurer of Candace. This guy is a big deal. He comes to Jerusalem to worship God, and he is told when he gets there, you can't come any farther than this. You can't come to the temple. You can't offer sacrifices. You can't get up close and personal with God. And finding out that to be the case, he heads for home. Disappointed, I am sure. I have no doubt. And as he goes, he reads from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, which for us, Isaiah 53 is one of those passages that we get to a lot around Easter time and sometimes around Christmas time. It is this great messianic passage, and we, we can't help but read Jesus in these words, right? Uh, let me read again those, those words from Isaiah 53 uh, in the text. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation and justice, uh, in his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life has been taken away from the earth. For us, that sounds like Jesus, right? He is the Lamb who is slain for the salvation of the world. Our sins are forgiven because his life was cut off. We may have new life. To us, this passage screams Jesus. 
The Ethiopian eunuch, however, does not know anything about Jesus. He has no idea who Jesus is. And so he asks Philip, who is the author talking about, himself or someone else? And our natural instinct is to go, someone else, Jesus. But let's not do that for a second. For just a second. Let's do what Philip does. Who is this author talking about, himself or someone else? And if I'm the Ethiopian eunuch, by the way, if I am reading these verses, in his humiliation, justice was denied him. That line to me, after having just been to the temple and being refused entry because I am different in my body, because I am not Jewish, because I am not clean, because I am not perfect in body. That line rings out to me if I am the Ethiopian eunuch. I have just been humiliated and access to God was denied to me. Tell me, Philip, is the author perhaps talking about people like me? That would be what I wanted to know. That would be my question. The Ethiopian eunuch's question makes so much sense to me. Is it, is it perhaps me that, that is being talked about here? And Philip, we're told, beginning with this verse of Scripture, begins to explain to him the good news. And here's what's remarkable. Three chapters from here, something really beautiful is going to happen. Today's lectionary passage is in um, not Isaiah 53, but it's in Isaiah 56. And I have no doubt that if this is where Philip started, Isaiah 56 is where he was headed. This is where Philip wants to take this guy to tell him uh, uh, the good news of Jesus Christ. So I want to take you there too. Let's move forward from Isaiah 53 to Isaiah 56 and begin at the beginning of that chapter. This is what the prophet will continue to write. Thus says the Lord, maintain justice, do what is right, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. Happy is the mortal who does this, the one who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and refrains from doing any evil. Do not let the foreigner joined to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Do you hear that? Do not let the foreigner say, the Lord is going to separate me. What has the Ethiopian eunuch just experienced? Separation. Separate. You can't go forward. You can't be part of God's people. You got to stay here. Do not let the foreigner believe that. And do not let the eunuch say, I am just a dry tree. Who is this Ethiopian in the, in the chariot? He's a eunuch. This is about him. This story is his story. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls. In my house and within my walls. The eunuch who had to stay behind the fence. You get to come into God's house and be inside his walls. 
You're not kept out anymore. God doesn't desire that for you. You can come in, inside my house, within my walls, a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. The Jewish people, they consider themselves the sons and daughters of God because that is what God has called them. We often as Christians consider ourselves the sons and daughters of God because that is what God has called us. And that is beautiful and amazing for both the Jewish people and for the Christians to have that grace given to be called the sons and daughters of God is just beyond imagining. But to the eunuchs who honor God's name, there is a name even better than that. I don't even know what that is. I don't even know what gets better than son and daughter of God, but they've got it. That's the promise, that you who were kept out, you get to come in, you get to come inside the walls, you are not cut off, and you are even better than family. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it, who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, that's where the temple is, and make them joyful in the house of prayer. That's another name for the temple. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for who? All the peoples, including this man in the chariot, including this man who was just excluded because he was different, because he was less than, because he wasn't like us or what our idea of a person ought to be. Listen, the church is not perfect. In a couple of weeks, we're going to begin a new series on the church, and that's where we're going to have to start on the first sermon. That the church is not a perfect institution, it's not a perfect place, and it's not filled with perfect people. And we have done some really terrible things to other people over the centuries. And one of the things that we have done is said that there are some things that will keep you away. That you can't come in if. And then just start listing it. You can't come in if your theology isn't exactly lined up with ours. You can't come in if you speak a different language. You can't come in if you are not male. You can't come in if you are an enslaved person. You can't come in if you're not, in our society, uh, the privilege of, of being white. There's no space for you in our churches. You can't come in if you are poor. You can't come in if you are unhoused. You can't come in if you have had run-ins with the law. You can't come in if, you, um, if your body is different, if you have uh, some kind of disability or what we would think of as a physical disability. You can't come in. There's no place for you if you are not mentally like us. You can't come in if you do not identify yourself sexually like we do. You can't come in if name it. Even stuff that's radically beyond our control. You don't have a space if something was done to you that we don't like. And for generations, God's people have been perpetuating this idea that some people have to stay away from God that some people are not welcomed to be his people. And if that has ever been you, 
in any way, shape, or form, if you have ever had it said to you that there's no place for you here, if you have ever been made to feel like you were not equal with other brothers and sisters, if you have ever, if you have ever been let know that it would be better for you to find another place, then you know what the Ethiopian eunuch knows. And I need you to hear what the Ethiopian eunuch has now heard. There is a place for you. You can come in. You will not be cut off from God's people. You can be inside the house. In fact, you get a name that's better than son and daughter. And so the Ethiopian eunuch hears this. He hears the good news about Jesus. And what is that good news about Jesus other than that in Jesus, God brings you in? That is the good news. That if you want in, if you want that relationship with God, Jesus makes that happen. Absolutely no questions asked. Come to him. And you've come to God. And so the Ethiopian eunuch says, I want that. I want to not be kept out anymore. Look, there's water. You've told me. I know. Let's do it. And Philip says, yes, let's do it. It's amazing to me that this passage of Isaiah 56 that we just read ends uh, with this word, my house will be called a house of prayer for all people. This uh, line from Isaiah 56 gets quoted by Jesus. It gets quoted by Jesus in one of the most dramatic pieces of the New Testament. This gets quoted by Jesus when he flips out and starts flipping tables. He has wandered into the temple and he says things are not the way they ought to be here. And he starts turning over tables and he starts driving out animals and he starts accusing the money changers and the religious leaders of turning God's house into something it shouldn't be. And this is the verse he decides to quote. What's Jesus really angry about? I think it's that little wall. I think it's the idea that some people get to come to God and others don't. So listen, I have talked for way too long. That's what happens when I don't have notes in front of me. <laughs> but let me leave you with this. That because of Jesus and because of God's love, there is nothing that keeps you out. Nothing. No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what's going on in your heart, your body, your mind, there's nothing that keeps you from God because of Jesus and because of God's love. You are welcomed in. And if you have ever felt like you were an outsider and you want to become an insider, please come and talk with us. Come and talk to me. Come and talk to Meg. Come and talk to somebody that's sitting next to you. We want to help you find a place to belong. If it's here with us, great, but we desperately want it to be with Jesus. There's a place for you. Come on in. And not only is there a place for you, but we're called to remember that there's a place for others. The one thing that set Jesus off was when people said you couldn't come. If there's one thing 
as Christians that we're going to get indignant about. It's going to be somebody trying to keep somebody else from Jesus. We're not doing that. There's a place for you. And remember, if you have a place, so does everyone else. That's why we take communion every week. It's why we come to the table. It's not my table. It's not the church's table. This is Jesus' table. It's not my invitation. It's not the church's invitation. It is Jesus' invitation. In some traditions, only certain people can come to communion, and I understand why. I understand the, the theology and the doctrine behind all that, and that's fine. But as far as we're concerned, everyone's welcome. Everyone is welcome. Everyone is welcome to come and remember who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Everyone is welcome to come and declare, I want to be in the house of God. So that's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray, and then you're going to have an opportunity to come to the table. As you do, uh, feel free to pick up a piece of bread and a cup of juice. There's gluten-free bread right in the middle if you need it. And then take those back to your seat. When everybody has been served, we'll take those things together as a community. Before we do that, we come every week to a moment of confession. Uh, this is not a moment where we say what terrible, horrible, rotten people we are, but it is a moment where we say we're not who we should be yet. God has invited us in, and because he has, we are being transformed. We are in process. This confession helps us to remember we're in the process of being shaped into the image of Christ. So if you are willing and able, I invite you to stand with me as we head into this time of communion with a word of confession. Would you speak with